Good afternoon. The Lord bless you. Let's uh, bow our heads for prayer. Dear Holy Father, we thank you that you've been listening to us. And you've been hearing our heart cries this afternoon. And something will happen because you've been here. And I pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless each session, each chorus session, each song session, each other session. Lord, there's work to be accomplished. There are things to be learned. There's a life to be lived. And there's a testimony to be left because we need more people for your kingdom. So please, Lord, lead us this afternoon. Give us grace and strength to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John is a unique gospel because all through the gospel, there is a search as to who is Jesus. Who is he? And people have all sorts of conclusions as you read the gospel. But if you look through the gospel and you study the disciples following Jesus, you discover that Jesus' greatest concern was that they learn to know him. And if they learn to know him, there are two things that will happen. The fear of God through his son Jesus will become their experience. And secondly, Jesus will become their sanctuary for whatever life holds. I invite you to turn to Luke, I mean to John, St. John chapter 17. I have not forgotten where we left off. I've not forgotten where we left off in the uh, earlier session today, but I would like this scriptural introduction. I am suggesting once more that Jesus' greatest concern was that his disciples know who he is, that they expect, experience the fear of God, and tomorrow I want to have both sessions around the morality of music because that will help us know where the reverence of God or the fear of God takes place in our life. And I trust you will be able to see tomorrow why it was lost. But in this session, you should already get a clue why the fear of God has been lost in the communities that we live in. You should already get a clue. Jesus does not want this to happen to his disciples. He wants his disciples to know who he is. And if you go to verse 22, he says, And ye now therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall remain, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto ye have asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Now that's the fourth time the word joy is used in about four or five verses. And I see that joy as being part of the wonder. And I just think that we need people today 
who obey God's commandments. And one of those commandments I call the unstoppable four by four. Some years ago, uh, I took a ride in a four by four for the first time with a preacher from northern Indiana who was a fairly highly motivated and energetic preacher. And the drifts were high. And his son was riding with us. And I didn't know that you could plow through drifts like we plowed through that day. I gasped for air a couple times. I'd never hit the cab ceiling that I remember. But we, we had a ride. And I concluded that it was an unstoppable four by four. Well, in Philippians 4, verse 4, it says, Rejoice. And it says, how? In the Lord. And then it says, when? Always. Now, when you get ready for communion, you think back, we heard, heard about that earlier. You think about over the things in your life and you want to make things right and you want to be in good standing with God before you commune. But I wonder sometimes how many people have considered that commandment and made sure they were right with God on that one. Rejoice in the Lord always, it says. And, and then very interestingly, he adds to it a second commandment in the same verse. My, that's asking an awful lot of us, isn't it? He says, and again I say, rejoice. I'd like to see lots of Christians these days that rejoice. And Jesus is saying here that you should ask, you're going to receive, and your joy is going to be full. Well, it looked like some of your joy was full this afternoon when you were singing in chorus. I'm kind of, as a chorus director myself, I kind of notice who's singing with joy. And the expressions will countenance it. Verse 25, these things have I spoken unto you in, in Proverbs. But the thing, time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs. But I shall show you plainly of the Father at that day. Ye shall ask in my name, and I say not to you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you because ye have loved me. And have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe thou camest forth from God. What a moment of revelation for the disciples. They're finally saying, we know who you are, Jesus. We really understand who you are. And if I had been in Jesus' shoes, I probably would have said, way to go, students. That was wonderful. But Jesus doesn't say that. And I've wondered about it. Verse 31 said, Jesus answered them, do ye now believe Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered. Every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. 
In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. End of quote for the moment. And you say, great, that's wonderful. Wait a minute. What's the context? Jesus has just had a supper with his disciples. Last time they're together like that. And one of his disciples just walked out on him. And the scriptures tell us, and it was dark. And it was dark. It is dark without the Lord. And so, and now they have just confessed the other, that we know who you are, we believe in you. And Jesus said, careful there. Careful there. In me. Boy, he says in first, in the world you shall have tribulation. That's very true. But he says, in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Context? They probably have already left the Last Supper. They already probably are walking over toward the Brook Kidron, going to cross over and walk up clear to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now the discourse that's recorded in this part of the scripture would take about 18 minutes. And I'm sure that it takes a lot. It took my wife and our sons a lot longer than 18 minutes to walk from the Garden of Gethsemane back to Jerusalem. And I'm sure it took them longer than 18 minutes. But I was suspicion that most of that time was quiet time. And every step was a heavy step. Jesus had a burden on his heart. And yet he gets done saying to them, you're going to have tribulation. They had no clue how serious the tribulation was. Jesus had tried to tell them, but they didn't catch it. But he said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Do you understand the English language? I have overcome the world. Why is he praying uh, two hours later there in Gethsemane, oh Lord, take this away from me if you can, please. When he just said, I've overcome the world. Why does he cry out the next day? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If we're supposed to be of good cheer, he's overcome the world. And then they take his body down and lay it into that tomb. Does that look like overcoming the world to you? Or is there a mistake in the English grammar here? Well, you know why it's a problem to us? It's because all of us had a beginning. We were conceived. We cannot look into eternity past. We can only look into eternity future. But not so with our Jesus. You see, Jesus did not have a beginning. Jesus was. And I've often wondered what happened when the seed was brought from heaven all the way to Nazareth. Did the demonic forces try to interrupt that delivery? They may have. But we know it was a successful delivery. Jesus is different than you and I because 
He can look in the past and he can see the past as clearly as he sees the future. And he can look in the future and see, his, see it as clearly as he can see the present. Which mean, But you and I can't do that. Which means we can be sitting here on March the 2nd. No problem. We can, we can see you know, where everybody is. But right now, Jesus can see the flood of Noah as plain as he can see this. Why? Because he is the eternal one. Because he is not bounded by time. Your and my mind work by time. His doesn't. His doesn't have to. He already knows which pew you'll be sitting on tomorrow in tomorrow's classes. And he can at the same time see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And it's just as clear. Both of them as clear as can be. Why? Because he's boundless as the eternal one. Now he is in the he was in the present. I understand that. And so often we see his divinity, even when he got tired, and even when he cried out, My God, my God, what is forsaken him. But you would think that the victory actually came when he said, Not my will but thine be done, and an angel came and ministered to him. Or when he gave up his spirit to God. And he said, it's finished. Or even more gloriously, when he resurrected out of that tomb. But this is a couple days ahead of that. When he says, I have overcome the world. Folks, what you are witnessing by that, in that scripture is the divinity of Jesus coming out. And immediately from there, in chapter 17, and this is what makes me think partly that they were already walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane, including the first verse of chapter 18. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now, I think he knew that his disciples were listening to his prayer. And a good teacher should explain his terms. And I don't know if his disciples were real, real good with this one, eternal life yet. And so in his prayer, he explains what he means by eternal life in verse 3. And this is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What matters most? Do you think that although your mind may have gone to the possibility of a farm sometime, do you think that that's really going to matter most when you have a little plot of ground that will be yours, about three foot wide, seven foot long or eight foot long, six foot deep? That's not a very significant real estate holding, is it? Maybe it's, maybe it's your wardrobe. Maybe you're special as sisters. Your, your wardrobe is really, really special to you. But you know, when we're laying in that little piece of wood, the wardrobe is singular. It's not really impressive. I mean, it's nice for the occasion, but that's about it. There's just a lot of things that come to a conclusion. But you know what matters most? That 15-year-old they buried the other day down south was the fact that he had come to grips with the eternal one. 
and had said yes to Jesus and was ready to die. And that's what mattered most to Sasha Krause as well. She had said yes to Jesus. She was ready to go. She had made Jesus her sanctuary. And I hope there's not a girl in this audience that will ever go through what she went through. Those few short moments, those several hours she lived, although there were very few hours that she lived. They could tell. It was very quick. It was over with very quick. Even though she wasn't found for five weeks. So what does that mean for us? What it means for us is this. If we have someone who is omnipresent, who is omnipotent, who is eternal, he's all-knowing, and we have access to him, and he can be our Savior and Lord, Pardon the expression, but how could anybody be so stupid to try to take their life and their own experience instead of trusting it to him? Why? He knows forward and backward. He knows what's happening in the past. He can say three days before it happens, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That's the kind of Savior I want. That's who I want to live with. That's who I want to live for. And I want him to be my fear and I want him to be my sanctuary. You say, is that an Old Testament principle? Yes, there are many Old Testament scriptures that go with that. Deuteronomy 4.10 I will make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me and that they may teach their children. Deuteronomy 5.29 Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And there's so many more scriptures. Joshua 24, 14. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. 2 Samuel 14, 12, 14. If ye will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following you, the Lord your God. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. And then, of course, there's Proverbs and Psalms. Like the fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want of them that fear him. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is to hate evil. Oh, you say, the fear of the Lord, Proverb writer says again, is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. You say, that's an Old Testament principle, isn't it? Why are we talking about it in this dispensation? Well, Acts 10.35 in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Romans eleven twenty, be not high minded, but fear. Second Corinthians seven one, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Ephesians five twenty one, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Philippians two twelve, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hebrews 2.28, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. 1 Peter 
past the time of your sojourning here in fear. And folks, this is not the paralyzing fear we spoke about earlier today. This is the energizing fear. This is what gives you the joy of the Lord and what makes it able for you to walk up to a stranger and give him the tract, address him, ask him if he's ready to love your Jesus. Well, the culture isn't going that direction. The culture is going a different direction. Christians need to be restored. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive, restore the wonder, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's what he wants to do for us. So, what are we facing? You know what we're facing. We're facing a decline. Many great events have influenced the decline. And we talked about a number of them. We want to talk about two specific things in the remainder of our time. We talked about the Reformation and the teaching. But if you go to Swingley's church today, you will see a statue of him right outside the church. If I remember correctly, on the east side of the church. You'll see his statue there. He'll have a Bible in his one hand. There'll be a sword in the other one. No separation of church and state there. No wonder the Anabaptists suffered for their faith. And so when Christians and the Catholic Church, the Reformed Church, when they began to persecute the Anabaptists, because they believed in a practical Bible. They, be, they believed in just submitting to God whatever God has for their life. And in doing so, they provoked the, the ire of these people who did not believe that. Religion was something in their head, but not something in their heart. They had form, they didn't have content. And so that irked them. And when they did that, and when they began to persecute, again, you see the culture falling. And now we're going to go to many, many years later. You go to World War I, and that was a huge event, because wars were fought on a local level. And in many, some cases, you could even hide behind trees when your fighting was going on. But it's a different story in World War I, because now it's nation to nation, and many different nations. And it affected many people. Eight and a half million people were killed. Now, if somebody dies in your community, how many people come to the funeral? One? A hundred? Two hundred? Six hundred and twenty on Friday? Eight and a half million people. You know that eight and a half million deaths is going to affect a lot more than eight and a half million people. And in many different countries. And so there's something begins to spread. And when Hubert Hoover began to visit country after country during his presidency, he came back saying that the greatest element in 14, he visited 14 countries. The greatest element I see in all the countries is fear. People are afraid. So 
the birth of pessimism. But then the American president during World War I said, this is the great war that will end all wars. Really? Has that been true? Why, you were born since then. You know better. World War II came on the scene, and now they added bombs. Now there's no point trying to hide behind a tree because that bomb's going to get you anyway. And I remember driving down the streets on the, on the fender of our little Ford tractor and going past, and a dad could explain to me what those little signs were in the door jams of Hutchinson, Kansas. They said, bomb shelter. So that if you saw a bomb was coming down in Kansas, and we were afraid of the Russians back then when I was a little boy. And so then you'd quick stop the tractor and go run in that bomb shelter. Well, not eight and a half, not eight and a half million, but 55 million people were killed. Now how many people were affected? Do you think there's a, there's a, a decline of living energy? Do you think with that many men and women, but men and young men, fathers and older sons, when they are killed in war, and then of course the two nuclear, not the two nuclear, the two bombs that were, yes, that were dropped in Hiroshima in that other Japanese city. I had a science teacher in high school said, I walked out on a bridge after those bombs. Were, one bridge was still standing. But he said, I saw the imprint of a human bodies in the concrete roadway. Now, in Kentucky, when you pour concrete, it gets hard. How could there be human body imprint after a bomb dropped? I don't understand that. But I do understand it was a horrible tragedy and it affected not 55 million people but many more than 55 million people. So what happens to people when this happens? Oh, they just enjoy life and life goes on like before and they're of good cheer, are they? Of course not. The culture drops. What do you think, jumping ahead now, what do you think happens to the arts when a culture is falling like this? What do you think happens to its music? I'll drop that for a moment and go back to this. On the heels of that came the Vietnam conflict. Now we talked about these two big bombs that were dropped here. But from 1939 to 1945, they dropped 100,000 blockbuster bombs which means one bomb is capable of leveling an entire block or creating death in that entire block. Now, the Vietnam conflict was a different conflict. If the World War I was birth to pe uh, the birth of pessimism, World War II was the birth of fatalism. And fatalism says there's nothing you can do about it. You can't get away from it. And Janis Joplin, famous singer, during this time, post-World War II, after a Vietnam conflict, said, I want to smoke dope, lick dope, anything I can get my hands on, I want to do. All my life, I just want to be a beatnik. I want to meet all the heavies. I want to get stoned, get laid, and have a good time. And her idea of a good time was dying from an overdose, eventually. Why? 
because the culture had fallen so far away from the understanding of God that there's, they're losing hope. And so the Vietnam conflict, somebody has called it the death to morality. It was during that conflict that I lived over two years in Washington, D.C., in the worst crime section of D.C. If I had time, and maybe later in the week, I'll tell you one or two stories of my experience there. But it was there where I, on Sunday nights, we would go to DuPont Circle and try to sing and give a Christian program to hippies. And they would, they would react. Some of them reacted. One older man was very upset with us. Every time we had a little portable speaker, we had a license to use it. He'd kick it over. Finally, he came up to me. He said, I'm going I'm to kill you. Well, I was young and nimble and spry. And I was not too worried that he would have an easy way of doing that. But he told me, he said, my son's coming back from the army. And I'm going to bring him. And he's going to kill you. Okay, so I had that to look forward to. Sure enough, a couple Sunday nights later, his son, his, he brought his son, and he pointed me out to his son. He said, now there he is, now take him. So we went out, we walked together, he had, his son and I, and he stayed back. I ended up having a nice conversation with him. I think he was disgusted with his father. Didn't work. Death to morality, didn't know what was wrong. Less than seven miles from where you're sitting at this very moment. Your father, four of you, and I, I think your father was helping that time, not sure. We're painting in a house in the spectacular city called Kelowna. Just right off of Highway 22. The man's name, I'll give you his first name, was Joe. We were on the north side of his house painting away, exterior painting on the shadow side of the house. And Joe came out and started talking to us. He was a Vietnam War veteran. And he told me things that he did. He said, we, in Vietnam, we would dig a trench right outside a village. And then we'd, we soldiers would head into that village and we'd drive everybody out. The grandpas, the grandmas, the people carrying their babies, all the, everybody. We'd drive, we'd bring them out and we'd herd them right down into the trench. And once we had them down in there, we shot them all. But that wasn't the end of it. See, they were trying to get rid of communism. That's what they were trying to do. So he said, then we jumped down on their bodies and we cut off one ear off of everybody. And we threw it up on the bank. And then we'd count how many soldiers made this raid, and we'd divide the ears out evenly to everybody. And we all stuck those ears in our pocket, and we headed back to our captain, and we told him how many people we killed that day, how many communists we got rid of the world of that day. Now, you'd think the captain would have noticed all the different sizes of those ears. And the captain should have said, you were committing war crimes today. You were shooting innocent people. I won't have it. Instead, the captain could give his commendation and say, good job, boys, good job. You can have off tomorrow. 
Do you think they went out to a Vietnamese forest somewhere and sat on a stump and just had a real time of meditation and quietness for a day to kind of rest their spirits? Absolutely no. They went into an uninhabited or, or unoccupied city, not uninhabited, definitely inhabited, an unoccupied city, and they, music, women, drugs, anything they could get, they immersed themselves in that. Why? They had to have amusement. And I, we, we kept on painting, but I'm hearing all this stuff from Mr. Joe. And then suddenly he said, you know, the uh, U.S. Army taught me how to fight, but they didn't teach me how to live with myself when I get back. Ah, that makes sense. We live two blocks south of 22 in Kelowna, and one day I heard the fire sirens go. So I wanted to know, where's the fire? The fire was at Joe's house, the one we had been painting. Why? Because he had a rough time with his wife on something. Now on the sidewalk it said he had put a little inscription on the love for his wife. That's why I built the house for her. And they went to a church just south of Kelowna. Even though he was a veteran. But he was so disgusted when they asked him at that church to start up a, a little army to protect the, their church. But now he had, must have had some kind of a bad discussion with his wife because he just went ahead and set the house on fire himself. Death to morality. Death to understanding right from wrong. Minds messed up. I talked to a Vietnam War veteran just a couple weeks ago. And he told me there was 58,500 men killed in Vietnam from the United States. He said, right now, there have been 60,000 Vietnam War veterans who have committed suicide. More than who were killed in the war. Folks, that's a heartbreaking tragedy. Death to morality. What do you think happens to people when they do that? The de culture, it declines. When we lived in Pennsylvania, less than a mile and a half from our place was a Vietnam camp where summers, the cycles would come in by the hundreds. And then they'd come over to our place to buy produce. And I asked them, is it really true that you did that? That you cut off ears of people? Is that really true? And one of them laughed a little bit and said, yes. We even brought them back some of the years. We brought them back and pickled them, put them in jars and hung them and set them on the mantles above our fireplaces. Vietnamese ears. Folks, what's going on in human minds? That's the decline of culture. And then we have the nuclear threat and we have the fear that goes with them and then the terrorism that goes with that. And that's, the, and that's what the world is doing right now. That's what ISIS is about, is to create this fear and this terrorism and, and, and get everybody so scared they are become immobile. They're paralyzed. Praise God there's Christianity on this globe. Amen. There's an answer for these problems. But you know what? When you have this kind of a problem right in, right in this era, right here, this 
right during this time is when something begins to happen because the country that we live in, as well as other countries, they cannot bear silence. And you know enough about Scripture that you know part of a Christian's life has to do with his meditation and silence. And this is, this is totally working against it. So what happens? A second thing happens. The subcultures begin to take form. These subcultures became strong. And they became strong after World War II. In fact, before 1948, there weren't any teenagers. Surprise? What I'm saying by that is the term was coined after World War II, teenagers. And suddenly there become teenage music, teenage games, teenage baked beans, teenage many, many things. Because teen becomes a market. And teen music. And here we have the establishment. And then we see these little subcultures come in. And here we are. The year is 1955. That's a long time ago in your eyes. Historically, it's not so long ago. Little Richard came on the scene. He came from a culture. Well, he came from a background where, well, before I tell you that, let me just say, his first song was titled Tutti Frutti. And it was so, it was so ridiculous. And the lyrics were so bad. In fact, some, a couple of years ago, I just went and looked up the lyrics again, and I regretted that I did. Don't even do it. Because it'll fasten itself on your mind. The radio wouldn't even play it. There was such a reaction. Little Richard grew up in a Christian church, you'd say. His mother was concerned about him. Very concerned about him. And she wanted the best for him. But little Richard... I mean, he went to church, he sang gospel songs. But church even was a place to perform in his mind. He did things that that just terrorized his mom. And Leva, his mom, said, I don't know why he does such evil, dirty things like that. It must be the devil. At 14... Actually, before 14, he was in a church one time and he jumped around so badly during the service and was trying to act out the hymns and everything. In fact, he's acting like a maniac. And they chased him out of the church, put him outside. But church was a place to show off, a chance to perform. Had an audience doing it. Well, that was in Macon, Georgia. Little Richard, oh, people were disgusted. And I can understand their disgust. But you know, a culture, and really I should have, you know, made a mark here and say post-World War II. But a culture, and, and this should really be at the bottom of the page, but then I have no room to work. So, Really what's happening here is they cannot bear the silence. And little Richard is so extreme that first there was shock. Why even 
in Nashville and other places. Well, I'll get to that in a moment. They just said it's awful. They refused to play his music. But you know, when a culture is far away from God and the fear of loss of God has been lost far already, there's not the sustenance, there's not the sustaining power inside to resist subcultures that come along. You may ask yourself the question, how did his movement and his extreme beat in his music, how did it ever catch on? Where did it come from? Well, it's no secret. And preachers used to denounce it, but it's no secret where it came from because, but people hesitated because they didn't want to be labeled racist. There were six colonies off the southwest coast of Africa where they were, people were sold by their chiefs out of those colonies and put on boats. And they traveled the Atlantic, crammed in holes that were unsanitary and, and accompanied by sailors who had no moral limitations. And the experience of those people was absolutely horrible, sometimes up to 10% to 15% of their trade, of their cargo, they called it, died en route. I think the worst I ever read was 30% or 35% of their cargo died on the way over. I have wondered already, I have wondered already, what the Atlantic Ocean is going to look at like when Jesus comes back. Probably more people coming out of the Atlantic Ocean than out of the cemeteries along the East Coast for sure. Probably. I don't know. They came to this country and there were people who knew, who saw these people and said, look, there are people for whom Christ died. We need to reach out to them. Now, before they came to this country, they went, they settled in an island south of our country, and they dedicated the island to Satan. From the same six colonies, they came to the United States as well as from Haiti. When they got here, and I think you're catching on by now, it's the deplorable, shameful slave trade of the past. Some of those people, people lovingly reached out to them, said these are people for whom Christ died. We're going to reach out to them. There are gypsies to reach out to. And they were converted. They didn't know how to read and write. It was forbidden them. And they began to write songs. Why? Because they had the giver of songs in their life. You can't be quiet if you're a Christian. And so they began to sing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there? Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Were you there? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Each time they sang, oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. But there's a last stanza to that song. Were you there when he rose up from the dead? Were you there? And they concluded 
That stanza by saying, no more it causes me to tremble. I wish I could tell you that is the end of the story, but it's not. Because there were people in the South who said, who said, we are not going to accept that God of the white people. After all the horrible things they've done to us, we're not going to accept their God, no way. But there was an emptiness inside they needed to fill, and they wanted to fill it with music. How typical of 2020. But trying to stay away from that yet comes later. So they said, Plantation owner, may we have, may, may we have a Pinkster Festival? Plantation owner, what do you mean by that? So they would explain, no, you are not having time for a festival. Didn't sound right to him. They were scared of it. But in the north, there was a greater openness. And so in Albany, New York, Manhattan, Boston, Massachusetts, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, those four cities, they began to have Pinkster festivals in the north. What made them want to have Pinkster festivals? Back in the old country, and I assume that this is when they had troubles in their villages, they would bring together, uh, the first man would come to the village, they would proclaim a festival or some sort, and the first man would carry his homemade drum, and he would set it down in front of him and begin to beat on it. Other men from the village would follow till there were 50 men in one long row, each with their own homemade drum. The uncanny part of it is that all 50 of them were beating a rhythm different than anyone else's. Possible? Only through spiritism, I think. And then the dancers would come and the dancers would come and they would do their solitary dances. But before they danced, they brought food. And they put the food down with the drums because they said the drums, the beating of the drums, caused the gods to enter into our bodies. And so we want them to be well taken care of, these gods. And so, and then the beating of the drums would take place and these people would fall absolutely helpless and they were so hypnotized, they lost control of themselves. That's the exact same thing that happened in those four cities in the north. They had that wild drumming for 24 hours, and the people who would come to dance in front of that would just fall over helpless. They could not control themselves anymore. Now, tomorrow we'll talk about the law of sympathetic vibration. This is where little Richard got his music. Little Richard made this statement. My true belief about rock and roll, I, I believe this kind of music is demonic. A lot of beats of music today are taken from voodoo, from the voodoo drums. If you study music in rhythms like I have, you'll see that is true. I believe that kind of music is driving people from Christ. It is contagious. How could he even mention Christ? He grew up in church. Here's another quote. I was using dope, marijuana, angel dust, cocaine, and heroin with pills and drinking. Rock and roll doesn't glorify God. You can't drink out of God's cup and the devil's cup at the same time. I was one of the pioneers of that music, one of the builders. I know what the blocks are made of because I built them. End of quote. You know, the world can react to something like that. And they do for a while. But the world 
this, a general society does not have enough substance to withstand it for a length of time. Buddy Holly came right after Little Richard. The year was 1956, a year later. It happened in a roller rink in Lubbock, Texas. And Buddy asked the roller rink manager, would you let me have my band play in your, in your rink? And I don't know how he'd have gotten hold of Little Richard music, but it was music of the same sort. And I tell you, the Saturday night roller rink party was just a family, out, a family affair. Fathers and mothers, their children would go skating roller, on the roller skates. But when Buddy Holly put his fellows in there and they began to skate the, and they began to perform the music, you should see the expressions of those fathers and mothers as they stopped their children from skating and said, you come with me. We are going home. We're not going to be here. They ended up emptying that roller rink out. And the next morning, the preacher got up in the local church and he preached against the horrible thing that took place. Why? That's shock. A horrible thing that took place at the roller rink last night. You should have seen Buddy Holly sitting in that church. He went to church too with his girlfriend. You should see him sinking down lower and lower in the seat because he knew very well what the, what the preacher was talking about. He went to New York City, went to the Apollo Theater in New York City, Buddy did, and he said, let me perform here. Only black people performed on that stage. There was no way they were going to let a white person perform on that stage. No way. They said, you'll be lynched. They'll kill you. But the manager was kind of crazy. And they decided to give it a try. The way they did it, they closed the curtains. They let Buddy Holly and his group begin performing before they opened the curtains. And then they pulled it out and the crowd went crazy. They went wild. They loved it. And they didn't lynch him because they recognized the music. And then on the heels of that comes a young man from East Tupelo, Mississippi. He goes to church too. He sings praise him, praise him, little children. He sings other gospel songs. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. He went to his mother one day and said, Mama, Sometimes I feel like I'm going to hell. You see, the church that he attended, they forbade music and movies and dance and alcohol and tobacco. They believed that sinners went to hell unless they repented in the name of Jesus. At 13 years of age, at 9 years of age, he felt he was baptized in the Spirit. At 13 years of age, he felt called to sing gospel songs. At Fifteen years of age, he was invited to sing with a Blackwood Quartet. But he said, I done signed a contract to sing the blues. And he didn't. The rest is history. His name was Elvis Presley. And what you see is the decline of culture here because Little Richard had already paved the way for Elvis music. I don't have time anymore to go into the rest of the details. I don't want to leave this to tomorrow. When he died in, <clears throat> pardon me, when he died in 1977, August 1977, 
He had a tremendous following. The shock had worn off. There was gradual acceptance. When he died, there were 80,000 people that crowded Graceland Mansion in Memphis, Tennessee to see our king of rock gone. They led them in abreast, four wide, for two and a half hours, then they shut off the crowd. Only 20,000 people got to view him. At the funeral, they went back to his past. And they sang hymns. How great thou art. Sweet, sweet spirit. What a friend we have in Jesus. Except they changed for the funeral the word Jesus to Elvis. What a friend we have in Elvis. Do you remember the next phrase? It doesn't work. It doesn't work, folks. It's a tragedy. Horrible tragedy. I saw the expression of Lisa Marie wondering, will her daddy come back? Her daddy didn't come back. In October, some years ago, I had the chance to meet his bodyguard, the the man who'd been his bodyguard at the time of his death. Elvis was famously rich and generous. Gave 13 Cadillacs to his friends one morning. Made the car dealer happy, made his friends happy. And I asked his bodyguard, I said, Elvis had so much money, didn't he? Yeah, he said 40000 in savings, but a million in checking. Where did he leave it? Behind. Behind. It's a tragedy. Shock, gradual acceptance. Why the tears at his death? Somebody asks, and somebody else responds, what happened is we just got used to Elvis. Elvis didn't change. Our perception of him changed. The scary thing tonight, this afternoon, folks, is that we're human. And I'm just going to uncover the rest of this because I'm not done. I need to get done quick. We're human too. When the Beatles came on the scene, the Beatles said we would have never been able to come to America and do what we did if it hadn't been for little Richard, Elvis Presley, and Buddy Holly. They opened the doors. In other words, they helped create the acceptance that comes after shock. They had met at St. Peter's Church in a church dance is where the Beatles had met. They brought with them And say the shock. Some people call Beatleism a form of mental disease. The hippie movement, the long hair, the casual dress. You should see the last picture of them in 1969, the last picture taking them together. Stands in stark contrast to when they first came in 1963. Only six years later. Then there was the religious movements. There was a number of those religious movements. One was... Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came with Transcendental Meditation. And the world was so noisy with all this beat music anymore that now it's time to have something more quiet. And so he promoted Transcendental Meditation. And in Houston, Texas, 
they raised, they made a 90-foot throne to put the perfect 15-year-old Indian master that came to the United States, and they put him up on that throne, and the Houston scoreboard flashed on the words, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Because they said he is the perfect master. Folks, that's not the perfect master. That's an anti-Jesus. That's the opposite. There were other religious movements. What to do till the Messiah comes. Pornography, religious pornography. Pornography became so strong after the culture declined that you could take the magazines of what was produced in America in one year and you could post, you could blacktop a two-lane highway all the way from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco with just the magazine covers of pornography. They did more, Sears and Roebuck was the biggest store in those days, not Walmart. They did more business in Los Angeles alone than all the Sears and Roebuck stores in all of the United States together. And where's pornography now? Where are the missing children now? Folks, the culture has fallen far. And then we get to humanism. And humanism now is supposed to be, that's supposed to be the solution. And when I say religious pornography, I should just tell you, I know one Mennonite pastor who actually was so involved in pornography that he finally was relieved of his administrative responsibilities in a Baptist pastor. He was relieved of his, his administrative responsibilities, but they still let him keep preaching because he just is too good a preacher to not let him keep preaching. Folks, that speaks of a decline of culture, a general acceptance of things that are wrong, that are not right, that are not biblical. Then we have humanism come on the scene. And I won't take much time on this, but this, this is also real. Dana Edwards, we, we don't get through life without some dark moments of personal tragedies. People need something to sustain them in times of crisis or times of loss. But more and more today, it seems like the old answers just don't fit. It's getting harder and harder to find roots with all the changes taking place around us. Sometimes you want to stop the world and get off. Once I felt like that, and then I found a philosophy called humanism. That was the answer, they said. I have some books on my shelf at home by a pastor in, in Pennsylvania whose son has become now the, human, the humanist chaplain of a college in the East as well. This speaks of humanism as well. And I will just say this. I just quote this last part. Those caught up by its religious aspect know that it provides a vibrant, satisfying faith. Humanism. That's what they're saying. Those who think of it as a philosophy find it both reasonable and adequate. Here's something else. Once the occult and new age terminology is removed, we have concepts and techniques that are very acceptable to the general public. We can change the names and demonstrate the power. We can open the New Age door to millions who would normally not be receptive just by the careful wording of their practice. Folks, who's behind it hasn't changed a bit. The culture has fallen. And now, in at least two states, I think I'm right on that, you can decide later which gender you want to put on your birth certificate. You don't, the parents don't decide. The doctors don't decide. The child gets to decide later which gender to put on the paper. Supernatural paganism. One writer, Christian writer, said this. When a culture falls so far, 
and they go past the humanism and they begin to believe in the supernatural but not in God, then that culture is near its end. It's near the conclusion of that culture. I remember a girl coming to me in Sarasota, Florida after a session like this. And I had spoken that evening about Hotel California. I had said that Hotel California was sung by the Eagles. And I became acquainted with it first by a boy at Bible school who had it under the seat of his car. He said, I was exposed to Christian teaching. He was a fine boy, often gave his testimony. But he was listening to Hotel California. He didn't know what was behind it. He didn't know that if you would listen to the lyrics, it would say, there were voices down the corridor. Last thing I remember, I was running for the door. Relax, said the night man. We're programmed to receive. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. If he had gotten the two-album jacket for it and looked at the pictures, he would have seen Anton LaVey in the window, a Satanist. When the Satanist church started in Los Angeles some years ago, in two years' time, it had 10,000 members. Why? Because we live in a dark time. And so I spoke about that. And this girl came to me afterward and she said, and she was not from our background, she was not even, she just had been invited, she was a neighbor girl. She said, I was watching television the other day and I saw the writer of Hotel California, I saw him get an award on TV and when they gave him the award for his songwriting, he turned to the television cameras and he said, all praise to Satan. And I saw him do it. And I knew that his girlfriend had just become a Christian. And I called her up and I told her that I saw your boyfriend just say all praise to Satan. He said that. And it shook her. And the girl had apparently had had another occasion of being with her boyfriend since her conversion. And she explained to him that she is now a Christian. And he said to her, You are light, and I am dark. We will never make it together. She was right. He was right. How could he know that? Because God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. None. There was a second occasion, and with that illustration I close. Charles Manson was part of this whole ordeal, this music culture I've just described to you. And I was speaking in the West, or Northwest, and I saw this one girl throughout the, throughout the evening. I saw the radiance of her countenance. Her face was just shining the whole time, it seemed like. And when church was over, she came up to the front and wanted to speak to me. 
And I think I had mentioned that Charles Manson was found. He was the one who was responsible for the death of Sharon Tate in the murder in 1969. And they found on his bedroom walls the Beatles song Helter Skelter scribbled on the walls in blood. And so she said, I was uh, with Charles Manson at Death Valley Ranch. Really? Yeah, when they came in to find the place, to find Charles, the place was empty. But there's a little 12 by 18 cupboard, and it must have been very deep, because Charles had pushed himself into that cupboard, but his hair was still hanging out over the cupboard door, and the police arrested him, and he spent his time in prison till he died a number of years ago. But what happened to you? She found Jesus. Jesus, she said, I used to take dope right at the kitchen table from Charles Manson. But she was in an Anabaptist service and knew what it was to have victory over this dismal picture I've just painted for you. And I want to conclude with that because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I want to assure you that God is so able... These things have I spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. If your heart's with my heart, and with the heart of your principals and matrons and people who are gathered sitting behind you tonight, your heart is saying, I surrender all. I love this Jesus, the eternal one, because he gives me cheer and gives me hope to live at a dark time. And I hate to stop here. I had another illustration I want to use, but I'm going to quit because it's past time. I beg your pardon. But be assured, we have a sanctuary for our time today. Form and content, if it's in harmony, you can enjoy that sanctuary and be so victorious in today's world. And what we need is about 10,000 teenagers just like you to help bring the gospel to this fallen culture of our time. God bless you.